All right, so um, Romans uh, lesson 41. So we're in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, we'll be, it's where we'll be starting. And uh, we're finishing up chapter 6 tonight. Oh, we need to, oh, Robin, Robin will get it tonight. Okay. Yeah, so, so um, we'll be finishing up the book of uh, chapter 6 and then moving into the first part of chapter 7. And uh, this is Paul continuing the thought that he's had from the beginning, but specifically since chapter 5, as he's been talking about our death in Christ, the substitution by which we have been justified, we've been reconciled, we've been made right with God, and then what God has done for us through the death of the old self. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ, we die, and then we are raised when he is raised, and God brings him to life, he brings us to life, if we are believers. If you're not a believer, you're just dead. And so that's, you know, that's the reality. Now, Paul doesn't talk a lot about that other side because he's not talking, in, in a sense, evangelistically in this lesson. His, his purpose in writing to the church is not as much evangelistic as he's wanting to reach out to, to the lost. So he's mostly talking to the believers, and they fall into two great categories, Jews and Gentiles. And so he's had a lot of things to say to the Jews, and in the last several lessons we've been talking specific analogies that he's brought up concerning slavery, which is more relational to the Gentiles because they didn't understand the law. They didn't understand what that was all about. And some of them probably said, those poor Jews, you know, they couldn't do anything to please God. You know, at least we could please our gods. Really? What gods? You couldn't please your gods. They didn't have any gods. And so uh, their gods were nothing. Their gods were myths. And there wasn't anything they could do. And if there was a plague, it was, well, we've done something to make our God angry. Or you did something and made God angry. And so he's pouring his trouble out on us. And so uh, there was all of that in their pagan religions. But coming to Christianity, uh, they're hearing this new truth that they've been forgiven of their sins. It's not that they have to go and do something to pay for their sin. They've been forgiven. And that this forgiveness is real. And it's, it's done. And that they have been given a new life. And then Paul gets into this whole thing about dying. And dying the old self, death in Adam. All these things that, that Paul's brought up. And so he wants to explain that a little bit more. And so as in the last couple of lessons, we've been talking about this slavery uh, analogy. And so he's kind of gone on through this. And just like Paul, he keeps saying the same thing again a different way. And sometimes it's almost the same phrases, but he puts it in a different circumstance and he brings up the same thing. So again, we're going to start reading in verse 17. I like to read the scriptures um, because it draws our attention to what God has said. Everything else, you know, that we talk about is subsequent to what God has said. And so let's read uh, Romans chapter 6. This is lesson 41. Truth presented in analogy. And so we'll see as we go through here. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, or delivered, as we talked last lesson. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity 
and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, again, great, beautiful passage, um, intricate, starting from chapter 6 all the way through uh, the end of the chapter, um, play on words, cross-referencing himself, you know, saying this, saying that, coming back to it, another way of saying it. All of this Paul wants to do so that people understand that when they died, it's their old self that died, not them. You didn't die. Your old self died. Or the old man. Right? So we talk about the old man or the old self. That's what died. And, and the fact that it died means it died in having power or control over you. It's not dead in the sense that it's gone. Because that thing is still there and it will draw you to your flesh if you allow it and so we'll talk more about that as we get into chapter seven and then the final answer he gives which is in chapter eight and so all of this that paul is saying is because he wants them to understand that when they were dead they were dead to the power of that old self but the old self remained. Then they were raised in Christ, but the old self is there. It just has no power over you unless you what? Give it. Unless you give yourself over to the old self. It's there, and if you want to, you can sin. And you say, well, I, it, it's not that I want to. It's just that I get, you know, it, it makes me. No, no. If you sin, you you wanted to, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> it's not that you are powerless because you have power and the old man doesn't unless you drag him out of the grave. Again, Paul uses an analogy of that when he talks about in, Roman, or in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, uh, wake up you who are asleep among the dead and Christ <laughs> will give you strength, right? And so wake up those who are sleeping among the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but sleeping in a morgue would not definitely not be anywhere on my list of, you know, want to's, bucket list, you know, of, of bucket list of things I never want to do. But um, there are those who are sleeping among the dead, and then those who are dead. Dead are unbelievers, Sleeping is believers who are there like them. So we'll talk more about those things as we come to especially chapter 7. So what's he saying here? He wants to bring this lesson back to us. And so we covered verse 17 down to the beginning of uh, verse 18. So that's kind of where my notes are going to start. And having been set free from sin, so down toward the bottom of your page, Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now, this is all dependent on one word, obedience. Right? So we go back up, look up to verse 16, that if, if, sorry, Lord, if, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness if you remember and I know you do all the way back to Romans chapter 1 Paul talked about the obedience of faith 
that there is an obedience of faith. Not, not obedience and faith. There's an obedience of believing. God has commanded us to what? Believe. So to obey is to what? Believe. So you become obedient. The first obedience you have is to believe. And then there is obedience which follows by which you can now live out the life of Christ that is in you. You've been risen to walk with him, so do it. Now, the word walk has a lot to do, and we'll talk more about that as we get further into the book of Romans, but to walk is how you present your life in the natural world. So how you walk as a believer, how you walk in Christ, or walk in the... What's the opposite of walking in Christ? You walk in or walk in the Spirit. What's the opposite? You walk in the flesh. Right. So you can live your life in one way or the other, but it's your choice. And so this idea of obedience is the important thing. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become what word? Obedient. Obedient. You have become obedient. And so this word, have become obedient, means it's a done deal. So if your obedience is complete, I'm not going to ask for hands here because I don't want to ask for hands, but if your obedience is complete, you'll never sin. If it's complete. Because he's given us the power. But it's not always complete. That's what we call the process of sanctification. And sanctification is us living out that obedience to Christ. So, the, the predicate, the thing that comes before, verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You're not a slave of righteousness if you're not a obedient slave. Because that's caught up in the idea of slavery. Slavery is a person who has no will of their own. And so it means to be under someone else's voice. And that's exactly what the word obedience means. To obey is the, look down there in your notes, is the Greek word hoop akuo. H-U-P-A-K-O-U-O. Hoop akuo. You see the word acoustic in there. So it has to do with sound. It has to do with a voice. And so hoop akuo means to sit under someone's voice. To submit yourself to someone's voice. Whose voice are we to submit ourselves to? to God, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, to His Word, right? His Word. And so we submit ourselves to Him. And if our obedience is perfect, then we will not sin. We are a slave of righteousness. What does the word slave mean? One who what? One who what? No will of his own. And so I do nothing except what pleases him. Now, Jesus made that statement. He says, I, I am with my father. And uh, I look to my father. I listen to my father. And I do everything that my father had said to me to do. I do everything. Now, I can make a plaque and put that on the wall. And confess it every day. Uh, but living it is a whole nother thing. Amen. I only do those things that please him. Wow. Now, is that how many would say that's a goal for my life? Yeah. It's a goal for me to only do those things that please him. Part of that is you got to find out what pleases him. So we say, well, it's in the Bible. Yeah, it's in the Bible. But. Are we reading it? Are we listening to it? And it's not just in the Bible. It's also in the voice of God to us. It's in the, the spirit that speaks to us. It's in the voice of Jesus that speaks into our life. So there's a lot of us things that we need to do to be a slave of righteousness, to submit myself unto him. And so the emphasis here on obedience indicates that it's not automatic. It's not coincidental. It's not just accidentally going to happen you have to want it to happen you have to make it happen just like that slave had to decide to do what the master says 
Now, he can rebel, and unfortunately, in that type of slavery, it might cost you your life. This doesn't, but it will not make you effective in presenting the, um, the glory of God to this earth. It won't be, make you effective in presenting your testimony. So, what does it say here? You have become slaves of righteousness, and so the idea that you will become a slave of righteousness means that you have submitted to his voice. And so now we want to talk about this word doulos, or slave, from a little bit different perspective. We've been talking about from the perspective of the maybe the Greek or the Roman world or even the Jewish world to a degree, but all of the pagan nations knew what slavery was. But this word doulos also has reference to things that we need to know about redemption. Right, so doulos, and so a servant, a slave of righteousness. We become slaves of God. How? How did we become His slave? How do we become a slave of righteousness? By what? Believing in Jesus Christ, and He set us free from the power of the old self, so that we can live according to His righteousness in the obedience of righteousness, that we would walk in that way. So we are slaves to him. Now, the idea of slavery is brought into the New Testament in the word redemption. And so we're going to look at uh, here three different categories for the Greek word for redemption. You say, well, I thought redemption was just one word. Well, it's not. But there's three different classes for the word redeem. And so down at the bottom of your page is the first, the first grouping. There's three groups. One is to redeem or to buy. The other is to release. And the other is to purchase. You say, aren't they all the same thing? Kind of, sort of, but kind of not. So let's look at these. The first category of these, and the one that is greatly affects this word doulos, is the word agorazo. Now, I don't know, maybe you know the Greek word agora, but that's the word for a marketplace. So someone who is, um, has fear of the marketplace is what? Agrophobic, right? And so they're not, they're not afraid of agriculture. They're afraid of the, of the marketplace. They don't like being out in crowds, out where everybody's mingling around. How many of you are comfortable out? where everybody mingles around. There's a lot of people. It's just fine. How many of you are not? And you're, the bigger the crowd, the more creepy you feel. Jan kind of gets that. You know, so she, she go to the grocery store if it's not going to be busy, but she doesn't like being there when the aisles are packed and everybody's pushing and everybody's trying to get this and all that. It, it bugs her. So she has a little bit of that, that issue. Um, the Agora was the marketplace. And so the word Agorazo means to buy something in the sense that you're in the marketplace. Um, this word is found. Uh, one of the chief references to this is Matthew 13, verse 44, there at the bottom of your page. Uh, the word to buy or to redeem something from the former owner. So Matthew 13, 44 is the parable of the, the, uh, the kingdom of heaven and the treasure hid in the field. So Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. The word buy there is the Greek word agorazo. We could translate it redeemed. He redeemed the field. What did he do? He bought it from the former owner. He redeemed it to himself. And so he redeemed that to himself. He bought that and what did he what did he pray for it what was the price all that he had now the question always is who sets the price the seller or the buyer here's the buyer the buyer because if i won't pay that price i don't care what you're selling it won't do any good but jesus determined that the price to buy the world 
was his blood. He paid all that he had, and he bought the world. Now, Pastor Bob, if, if many of you have been in uh, Bobby Indian's teachings on the parables, and, and he was one of the greatest at teaching these truths from the parables that many other people missed. And the thing he brings out about this one is, what did he buy? What did he buy? Say it to me. No, he bought the, he bought the field. But he got the treasure. Right? He bought the field, but he got the treasure. Now, in other passages, the Bible tells us that the field is the world. The treasure is Israel. And he bought the world in order to redeem his people. But when he redeemed his people, he got us too. So he bought the field. He didn't just go and buy the treasure. He didn't go to the man and say, hey, I found this treasure. Uh, how much will you charge me for it? No, he bought the world. Jesus paid his life for the world. He was after his people. The gospel came to who? First, the Jews. Jesus said, I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so his purpose was for Israel. The treasure type of the gems, all those gemstones you find in the Old Testament, Israel was God's treasure. But in order to buy or in order to gain the treasure, he bought the world. Jesus didn't come just to redeem the Jews. He came to buy the world. Thank God. Because he got me along with it. So that's all. There it is. And the price was what? His blood. First Peter 1, 18 says, Not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So he paid the price of his blood. Top of the next page. Now, when this word agorazo, or to buy, is attached to a person, the phrase that is always used is this word, agorazo time. They can be separated by other words, but it's agarazzo and time, T-I-M-E. Agarazzo, to buy, time, means the price, to buy for a price. And it's always used in reference to people. To buy for a price had to do with buying a slave, because that's where the slaves were sold, in the marketplace. And the only way you can buy a person is if they're a slave and you buy them for yourself. And so what does Paul say concerning this? To purchase as a slave, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7.20 says, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. So we've been bought with a price. We've been bought as a slave. We were slaves to what? to sin. And by sin, we were slaves to the law, but basically we were slaves to death. Of course, Satan was in there too, operating all of that. But our slavery was really to death, ultimately, because we were slaves to sin and slaves to the law. So there wasn't anything we could do. But he bought us. So he purchased us as a slave. But then we get to this next word. Look at the next word down, highlighted in yellow. Ex agarazzo. See, they put the word ex in front of agarazzo. It means to purchase out from, to buy away from. And this word means that you buy the slave and you send them away in freedom. You bought the slave to set him free. And so this is one of the most beautiful types of what Jesus has done for us. He bought us to send us away. I don't know if you know the story of Ulysses Grant, but Grant did this in his early years of his life before he'd become a general. Uh, he married a young woman and her father was extremely, um, extremely prejudiced. He hated the black people. And um, he had slaves, and he believed a slave was just a step above an animal. 
And so uh, he was a horrible man, but Grant was not that way. He never grew up that way. And so one of the things that his father-in-law gave him when he got married was he gave him a slave. And Grant hated it, that he'd been given this slave. So what did he do? He worked till he could pay this man's freedom. And he worked to buy the freedom for this man who was, quote, his slave. So he could set him free. The man stayed with him and worked with him for all of his life. So this was a story in the natural realm. And this would be what happened. You know, we talk about this word, doulos, and we use the word bond slave. Well, it's only a bond slave when the person has been purchased and set free, and then the slave comes back and says, but I want to live with you. I want to serve you. I want to give myself to you. Not as a slave. It's not a slave anymore. Now he's set free, and he's serving because of his desire and his loyalty. And so this is the sense of the bond slave in which we have become to Christ. We are bond servants of Christ. And Paul uses that phrase uh, <clears throat> a number of times. He never calls himself a slave of Rome. He's a slave of Jesus Christ, a bond slave. He bought me, he set me free, and I gave myself back to him. To be a what? A bond slave, a slave of righteousness. I want to give myself in service to him. I want to live under the influence of his voice, doing what he has said, accomplishing his purpose. And so the idea from this, look at this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us. This is the Greek word ex agarazzo. Redeemed us out from the curse of the law. Not just away from it. He redeemed us out from the curse of the law. Notice it doesn't say curses. Poverty, sickness, and death. I know those are the curses of the law. He didn't redeem us from poverty, sickness, and death. He redeemed us from the law. The curse of trying to live by the law. That was a curse in itself. And he redeemed us from the curse of having to live by the law. Glory to God. And out of that... We're also redeemed from poverty, sickness, and death. But it is the curse which was the law. How did he do that? Becoming a curse for us. His life for our life, which actually gets me to the next word in just a second. And so this has redeemed us out from the curse of the law, which means redeemed out from the curse of the law, which means what? We have been bought out from it, which means we're free. We can't be, can't be put back under it you can't put me under the law i've been redeemed out from under the law you can't put me under the bondage to the law i don't live in bondage to the law i should live as a slave of righteousness to jesus christ giving myself wholly to him first uh galatians chapter 4 verse 5 verse 4 Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy out from under the law those who were under the law, to, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He bought us out as slaves to the law, slaves to sin, slaves to death. He bought us out and then did what? He didn't just buy us out and set us free. He did what? Adopted us. He made us his sons. Gave us a prominent place in his family. He instantly gave to each one of us. You don't, listen to me, you don't grow into being a son of God. The day that you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. Fully endowed with sonship. But on another hand, you're a slave. You say, how can that be? Because it is. Different analogies don't mix metaphors. Right? We talked about that before. So these are the things that God has done. We've been purchased by God, sent away in freedom. And so here, even though he's using the idea of law, law is bondage to sin, which is bondage to death. 
And so we are no longer under that power. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on these next two, but the next word grouping, there's agorazo, which is to redeem or to buy, especially to buy as a slave, and then to buy as a slave and set free. The next word grouping is the word lutrao, L-U-T-R-O-O. L-U-T-R-O-O, Lutrao, and it means to be released from captivity. And it's specifically used in reference to someone who's been put in bondage. Now, that can be a slave, but more in, it has reference to those who are captives of war. Did you know before you got saved you were a captive of war? A war that you didn't even make? A war between Satan and God? And he made you his captive. One of the things the Roman army would do and other armies from the time is they would not just conquer people to, as I've said before, conquer people and make them their slaves, take them back to Rome and sell them and make money. They would also sometimes just conquer people and hold them for ransom until someone came and paid the ransom price. It's like mass kidnapping. And so they would they would conquer people, make them their slave, not slaves, just make them their prisoners, hold them in prison until somebody paid the ransom. And they were held there not to serve anybody, just because they wanted money, and Rome was very hungry for money. So they would conquer people, just put them in, in chains, put them in prisons and hold them, and if you wanted them set free, you could do that. Unfortunately, you know what? That still goes on in the world today. It goes on in Nigeria. There are people conquering people, buying people, kidnapping, we call it. It goes on in Mexico. It goes on in South America. It goes on in parts of Europe, parts of the Middle East. It is a horrible, despicable thing that people do, and they conquer people, hold them so that you will ultimately pay some price so that they can be free. What did Jesus do? He came to set them free. The word lutrao, listen to this. The root for the word lutrao is the word luo. You say, I'm getting more Greek than I ever wanted, but that's all right. Luo, L-U-O. And the Greek word luo means to destroy, but what it really means is to dissolve, to cut the things that are holding something together. It's like to dissolve the, the bonds that are knitting it together. If you do that with a sweater, you can cut certain thread and the whole thing just kind of unravels. It would be used for a net. You could do that with a net. Um, but it has the, the idea of dissolving what is holding things together. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to dissolve the bonds that were holding us as captives of war captives of war and the idea that is used there it's also the same greek word for wash so to wash comes from the same greek word luo luane for which we get the word lavatory and so uh, the idea of washing luane had to do with dissolving the bonds that were holding the dirt on your hands used to work in mechanic stuff and lawn mowing and all those things and working in the haymows and come home and my hands were absolutely just filthy, ground in, and we had lava soap. We were lava soap. Rubbed skin right off your hands. But you know what else it did? It released all that dirt. I mean, the black stuff that went down the drain, it was so dirty. Or you can get those goop stuff that you can put on. You know, and it suddenly it just... And it just wipes it all away. Why? Because what it does is it, it dissolves the bond that's holding it there. So that's the idea behind wash or to free. It's the same Greek word that's used for when we have been washed in the blood. We've been freed by the blood of the lamb. His blood has dissolved all of the bondage of sin. And it is gone. Isn't that beautiful? So... That's the idea that is used here to, uh, to remove this uh, classic verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, 
and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Now, and the idea of ransom was one life for one life. That's what, so here's the price. You want 10 people, it's going to cost 10 times as much. You want 100 people, it's 100 times as much. No, Jesus paid one price for all mankind. That's so beautiful. There are people that have problems with, well, no, God hasn't redeemed everyone. Not everybody can be saved. God didn't save everyone. You know, uh, he's not paid the price for everyone. Some people can't be saved. God sovereignly chooses the ones he wants to be saved, and he only pays the price for them. I'm sorry, you're wrong. The Bible says he gave himself a ransom for all, and the Greek word for all means all. Yeah, you're right. Guys, see, you're picking up Greek already. That's great. So, this is, the, this is the point. Jesus gave one life for all. Now, we've seen that in Romans 5, where he talked about Jesus as a head versus Adam. Adam, all his sins, and we were all made. Jesus paid one price, and all of our sins were removed. So, this is, this is the glory of, of the work that God has done. Now, the last word to me is the most beautiful, all these redemptive words. Uh, the word is peripoeo. I know. Just get your mouth moving and it'll just say it peripoeo. And uh, the Greek word means to purchase to yourself. To purchase to yourself. To buy something just because you want it, not because you need it. Not because it's useful in a sense. You buy it just because you want it. People pay extravagant prices for things. Artwork, jewelry, houses, yachts. They pay extravagant. You say, well, that is so extravagant. That's wasteful. But it's what they wanted. It's what they wanted. People could look at your life and say, yeah, I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Said, yeah, I'm not sure you were worth that price. <laughs> really? Look at Acts chapter 20. It might be extravagant in other people's opinions. It's, it's actually, it could be word for wasteful. It's, it can be used that way. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, pray, pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the leaders of the church at Ephesus and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops to pastor the church of God. The word to care for in the Greek is to pastor. To pastor the church of God, which he, listen to this word, parapoeia, purchased with his own blood. You know, if you're in ministry, if you're pastoring people, if you're ministering to God's people, treat them that way. These are the people he paid his life for. So he purchased them with his blood. So before you become abusive, before you become indignant, before you see them as harassing or whatever, realize, no, he paid his blood for them. Treat them that way. Every pastor needs to meditate in those verses. Unfortunately, they don't. Now, here's the last point. But having been set free, we have become slaves. Having been set free, well, then how, am I, how come I'm a slave again? Because this slavery is your choice. That slavery was not your choice. You were born into that slavery. Adam was a slave. You were born of Adam. You're a slave. But you died with Christ. And you've got a new life. And now you have chosen to give yourself as a slave to righteousness. So what does he say? Look at verse 19. Romans 19, first part. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of our natural limitations. He says, I haven't used this analogy because I don't have anything else. All right? So verse Second part of verse 19, verse part B. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So that's, that's how you once were, unable to change where you were. 
So we, we realized we were in bondage to sin. And there's nothing we could do about our situation. We were powerless, and we presented our members as slaves to that lawlessness. Verse 19, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. All right, so let's break these words down. First of all, the word present. In the Greek language, the word present. Sometimes in the King James, I think it's translated yield, yield yourselves or yield your bodies. Um, but to yield, but it really is a Greek word which means to give yourself over, to release into someone else's control. To release into someone else's control. I present my body as a slave to righteousness. I yield myself. I yield my mind, my will, my emotions, my physical being. My spirit's already been yielded to him. The question is, is my body, my mouth, my eyes, my thoughts, my desires, my hands, my feet, what am I doing with my body? What am I doing with my mind? So Paul says, now present or yield yourself or offer yourself over to someone else's control as a slave to righteousness. See, a slave would come before their master with outstretched arms and say, here I am, your will is my will. Well, that's how we need to approach God. Same way. I stand before God and I say, here I am, your will is my will. I offer myself to you. Present yourself. I give myself over to your control. And like I said, Jesus could say, you know, I am always doing those things that please him. That's, that's, that's a goal for me, to always be doing. Mostly be doing, sometimes be doing, come on. You know, so once in a while I'll be doing, I hope that's not the case, you know. On occasion doing, no. I want to, I want to offer myself. But I have to constantly be aware of this. So that when the flesh says, yeah, but don't you want to do this? I say, no, you don't have power. You could say, shut your mouth, you know, because I don't want to be under his control. I don't want to obey my flesh. So I don't want to hear your voice. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to give myself into that. Now, this is part of what led certain groups of, of religious people, religious Christians, down through the ages uh, to do certain things, you know, that, that they considered to help them. If they, if they did get tempted to something, then they would beat themselves, or the, they would call flagellation, or they would sacrifice eating, and they would go out in the... So this led to the whole monastic um, orders of, of good Christian leaders leaving society and going out and living on a, on a termite mound out in the desert with no one else around so that they could be there and serve God without temptation. Hey, God didn't call you to go away from everybody to serve without temptation. If you can do it out there, you can do it in the midst of your family. And you can give yourself over and be somehow useful to the church. There were entire generations of potential good leaders who gave themselves over to nothing but going away in a monastic manner and closing themselves off from everyone else. That's not God's desire. His desire is for you to offer yourself to him in the midst of your family, in the midst of your friends, in the midst of your day-to-day -day work. Give yourself over to him and live to his glory in the midst of people. Why? So they can see it. That's part of sanctification, is that it appears to other people. No one sees your justification. I mean, I, I, I accept your word. You've been saved. I accept, you know, the, your, your testimony. 
But I can't see your justification. But I can see your sanctification. I can see the things that your mouth, you're doing, the things that your mouth is saying. There are appearances. So there's justification. Thank God for the inward work, which is real and forever and once and all for all done. And sanctification, which is progressive, that we're supposed to be walking. And by the way, I said it last week, but if you didn't get it, another word for sanctification is what? Holiness. Same word. I don't know. It sounds different. For some reason, holiness sounds like long ponytails, black coats, no smiles, you know. Yeah. No. Present yourself. Now notice one of my bottom points there. When it comes to this presenting, you make the choice. You take the initiative. You do this, and you do it now. Now, top of your next page. Out of this there will be fruit. If you have given yourself as obedient slaves. That key word, what? Obedient. Obedient. Key word is obedient slaves. That you're living under him, you're committed to what he said, then, then you will produce these works. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What that means is there was nothing you could do to, to uh, produce righteousness. You couldn't. You could do good things, but you could not produce righteousness, right standing with God. You could not. The only way to find right standing with God or justification is through faith. By faith, we are justified, right? So, so you were free in regard. You couldn't, you, you were free not uh, in control of righteousness. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Death. If I continued that way, I was going to die. I've tried to witness to people. I'm sure some of you have had this kind of witnessing experience. And I've talked with people and I says, you know, the way you're living, you know, it's just, it's, it's going to tend to destruction. You need to change. You're killing yourself. You're going to destroy your family. The young man that I worked with in the research laboratory, and, and I tried to witness to him. I tried talking with him. And he says, I know. He says, my mom raised me in church, but I never wanted to believe it. I don't see that there's anything in church for me. I'm happy with my life. I know. I've not been faithful in my marriage, but I'm okay with that. I know I get drunk too often, and I curse, and he didn't have to tell me that. (laughs) He said, I'm angry and mean, but you know what? This is the life that's making me happy. And I don't want to change. But you're killing yourself. And it's like, I don't care. Have you ever witnessed somebody like that? I, I don't care. Hopefully, somewhere down the line, your words and other people's words will finally grab a hold and they'll say, you know what? I do care. I do care. Verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin. How are you set free from sin? Because the old man no longer is controlled. The old self has no control. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God if you are what? Obedient. If you're obedient, right? You're slaves of God through obedience. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. Can I come back to that word obedience? Don't, don't hear in there the law. Don't hear obedience to the law. Hear obedience to what God is saying to you. Obedience to what the word is telling you. Obedience in how to live your life to his glory. Obedience in how to produce fruits of righteousness in your life. Obedience of how to serve other people. How to serve God. How to serve the body of Christ. How to serve the world. So... When I say obedience, don't think I'm talking, oh, here we are, back to the Ten Commandments. We thought we were free from that. You are free as far as that has no power to control you. 
But God still is a God of holiness. And He has called us to walk in holiness. And so there is a way that God wants us to live. He changed your inward man so that you can live that way. Not so that you have to. Not that you must. But so that you can. And so this is the, the point of this obedience is I want to put myself under His voice. If I find myself in a situation where I know I'm in sin, I'm in rebellion, I know I haven't been listening to his voice or I wouldn't be there. You have been set free. God did that for you. You have become obedient. You have become obedient. And you produce fruit that leads to what? Sanctification. And by here he's talking about a demonstrated separation. Holiness. Being sanctified. Set apart. You live a life that's different. You don't talk like them. You don't act like them. You don't walk like them. You have produced a different line of life. And your fruit is different. Look at verse 20. We all know this. Romans 6.20 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The wages, that's what you earn. You will be paid for your rebellion. My young friend, he's going to be paid for his rebellion unless he changes. And then what happens to all of his rebellion? It's gone. Disappeared. No matter how long he lived in rebellion, it's gone. Why? Because that old self is dead. And he's been raised to walk a new kind of life. And I believe somehow that message has gotten to him. But the free gift, unearned. The unearned gift that God gives us is eternal life. Now, I want to cover this, and it's not complicated if you'll just follow it. All right? And this is the analogy of marriage. Paul, by the way, didn't stop at the end of verse 20 and say excuse me i'm going to start another chapter so you're you're you don't have to read this one until next week no this is the same thought the same ideas the same illustrations just now bringing out a different analogy so read with me 7 1 or do you not know now why did paul say or do you not know well because i've been going through this over and over and i've told you that several times and so, do you not know, he says this actually three times in the book of Romans, do you not know, do you not know, do you not know, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, that's a statement, stop with that statement, that's a statement in itself. The law is only bonding as long as you're alive. Dead people cannot obey the law. The law has no power over a dead person. It's done. It's over. Now that's just the illustration. The law is only binding over a person as long as they're alive. Once they're dead, the law ceases. All right? Now, Paul says, now let me let me come up with an analogy for this. And so he brings another, we've been talking about the law and grace. We've talked about Adam and Christ. We talked about slavery. Now we're going to talk about marriage. And he wants to, verse 2 is a complete thought change. It's, okay, here's an analogy Paul is saying. So what did he just say? It's only binding on a person as long as he lives. All right? Let me give you this. Can I, that's, so that's what Paul says. So let me give you this. A married woman is bound by law, not the law, by law, to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Simple illustration that's in and itself, all right? Don't try to make that fit everything else that he's been saying all along. It's just an analogy. If 
a woman is married and the husband dies, her marriage is over. Right? She's freed from marriage because the death of the husband. Even a pagan culture understood that. So all of them could understand this. Now notice, notice what it says. It's not that the woman died. Well, wait a minute. I thought in our analogies we die. And then we're, we're in a whole different don't mix your metaphors. <laughs> forget all those other things he was talking about earlier in chapter 6. Don't forget them. It just that's not what he's talking about here. Just keep this simple an analogy in your mind. So who dies? The woman or the man? The man dies. So the husband is a type of the old self. He's not a type of the law because the law didn't die. What died? The old self. All right. So the, the husband is a type of the old self. The woman is a type of your being, your person, who you are. It's your old self that died, not you. You got that? So you're the wife. Your old self was the husband. Is that, is that good with everybody? Yeah. So what died? You are the old man. The old man. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so Paul says your old man died. But it's, it's the old self that dies. And so what? The being, your person is now free. Is that right? Because the old husband is dead. The old self is dead. Now you're free. Free to what? Marry another. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, and he did, right? If her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So she's free to marry someone else. So your person, your being, my old self died. My being is now free to marry someone else. Who am I going to marry? Christ. And so that's the analogy. Don't try to blend it into all those other things and all the other types. This is an analogy Paul came up with just in itself. All right? The old self is dead. The believer is now free to marry another. And who's that going to be? Christ. Look at the top of your page four. In chapter five, chapter five, we talked about two heads, Adam and Christ. We were in Adam. Now we're in Christ. Is that right? In chapter 6, we talked about two masters, sin and the law because of sin, but sin and what else? Christ. Sin and Christ. So we had, you can have one of two masters. If you were in Adam, you can be in Christ. If you were under uh, sin, now you can be under Christ. Now in chapter 7, he just brings out this analogy to husbands. The old self, but the old self died. And now the new self is free to what? Marry another. So, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. So, my bondage to the law was because of sin. The old self was in bondage to that. <clears throat> Belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our old, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. Why? Because we died, right? And the old self died, and so I'm not in bondage to that anymore. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Now, I know, but wasn't it the husband that died, not the woman? Yes, but in a sense, you're dead to that relationship. Does that make sense? You're separated 
from that relationship. If the husband died, the woman is separated. So she's dead to him just as much as he's dead to her. And so that is done. You're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law has no bondage over me because I died to that. And it cannot put me in that bondage any longer. I've been set free from that. And so in the marriage analogy, the old man died. And I'm free to marry another. In Adam, I died. In Christ, I live. My master was sin. My master now is Christ. And so these are the principles. Now, this sets us up for the contest of the Christian life, which is my next section. And so starting in verse uh, 6, 7, actually verse 7, down through the end of chapter 7, he's going to present the contest of the Christian life. There is a battle. There is a war. There is wrestling. There is poles here and poles there. But God gives us a victory. But the fullness of that victory is not revealed till chapter 8. So you just have to hang on with me, and one day we'll get there. 